is the Cloud Now Podcast, your launchpad for Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud and Out podcast. My name is Andreas. And my name is Michael. We are brothers and freelancers focusing on Amazon Web Services. We do technical coaching, for example, for teams that start their journey with AWS. And infrastructure bootstrapping, typically based on our infrastructure as code templates for our clients worldwide. Every other week, we discuss a topic related to AWS in this podcast. One of us prepares the topic which is not known to the other one. And that's why I'm asking Michael, what's the subject for today? Yeah, Andreas. So today we talk about a way to improve IAM policies by looking at data. And you might think, okay, that's CloudTrail, that's obvious. But no, it's not CloudTrail. We are going to use another method that is, in my opinion, more accurate. And it's called client-side monitoring. Michael, that sounds very interesting because um, coming up with IAM policies or improving IAM policies in a way that they follow the least privileged principle uh, is always something uh, I'm struggling with and probably everyone is <laughs> who is doing stuff on AWS. That's why I'm very interested in that topic. Um, before, before we start, I have to mention um, this is episode 27. We are recording this on September the 10th, 2020. And as always, you will find a blog post that covers the topic as well. You will find a link to that in the show notes. Uh, so especially if you want to go through it later, um, that's a very easy way to do so. So check that out. Okay, Andreas. So you already mentioned it, that this is kind of a common problem. Um, so I experienced this at least three times this year already. So when I was working for clients, so I, I get a setup, I see IAM policies that are already created, and my task basically is to look at them and understand if they are actually following the least um, least principle, uh, sorry, <laughs> the, the principle of, um, how is it called? The least privileged principle. Uh, least privileged principle, okay. So what does it mean? Basically, it um, the idea is that you only allow the actions on the resources that you should um, and all the other stuff is not allowed. And this is pretty hard from an outsider if you're looking at a system. And the only way to figure out if that is actually uh, correctly configured is to look in the past and see what calls were actually made and then use this as a discussion with the team that runs the software to figure out if you can improve that. And the problem always was that CloudTrail lacks so many information. So um, all of the I would say interesting API calls from a machine's perspective. So for example, if you get messages from SQS, this will not show up in CloudTrail. Um, if you download something from S3, it only shows up in CloudTrail if you enable data events, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So, so CloudTrail is missing a lot of the API calls, but maybe just to, um, yeah, to introduce that. So CloudTrail is a service that is intended to have an audit log of all the things that are going on in your AWS account. That's basically the marketing slogan, I would say, that AWS uses here. And um, yeah, it's definitely, there's a lot of missing there. That's that's a, a very good thing here. And and that will make it to, to yeah, to, to get the problem from my perspective as well. So I think there is, there's two different things here. So sometimes you get an application that was maybe built by um, an independent um, software vendor 
And you just have to operate that on AWS. And if they do not provide an IAM policy in their documentation, you basically have no other chance than yeah, using CloudTrail or what you will um, show us today to find out what's going on. Or and the worst thing is basically this trial and error <laughs> to figure out or to guess the API calls that the application is, is doing. Um, if you have access to the source code, um, you could, in, in general, you could find out um, about the SDK calls that they are using and, and try to guess from there. But, but oftentimes you don't have access to that. And then, yeah, then it's really hard um, to get that up and running. And that's probably also why I see many, in many, many cases, customers are completely not doing the least privilege uh, principle when creating their IAM policies because it's so hard to get that done. And then there's not enough time to do so and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, so very interested. How does it, maybe you can tell us a little bit, how does that work? How do we use that? Yeah, so uh, let me add one thing. So as you mentioned, like if if you find something that it was not following least privilege principle, for example, if you see like DynamoDB full access or something like this attached to an EC2 instance, you know that's bad. But the question now is, okay, what, what is actually needed? And it's so super hard to make this decision without interrupting the application. And that's why we have to look at data and I will show you how it works. So the feature that we use is called client-side monitoring. And it's, as I said, a feature of the CLI and all the SDKs. So if you are using a, a one of those ways to call a, APIs of AWS, then you are covered. So it's not working if you call the APIs directly. Yeah, but, uh, but probably that's not a problem because I think probably 99% of all applications are using the SDKs because it's making it so much easier to interact with the AWS API. So, Yeah, I agree. So, I mean, if you find something really old, it's like maybe like, like from the early days of AWS, then this might be a problem. But like if there's a recent uh, up-to-date application that's um, integrated into AWS, then you are fine. Okay, so how can we enable it? So there are basically two ways to enable it. Um, and this works across the SDKs and across the CLI. It's the same for um, whatever you use to connect to AWS. Um, there's an environment variable called AWS underscore CSM underscore enabled. And if you set that to true, then this SDK will start uh, to provide this information on UDP port 31000. The other way of configuring is that I usually uh, use as well. Um, there's this thing called the shared configuration file in AWS. And it lives in the home directory under the .aws directory, and it's called the file is called config. And there you can set a CSM underscore enabled um, variable to true or setting to true, and then also um, the SDK and the CLI are instructed to turn uh, client-side monitoring on. So those are the two ways. So what I usually do is, like, if I want to monitor or capture the data from such a machine, I will go through all the users on the machine and add this into their configuration file in the AWS directory. And then I also look through the processes that are running and see um, how they are started. If they come with the home environment variable, then the SDK will be able to fetch the shared configuration file. The problem is if the home environment variable is not available, which is like if you have an interactive shell session, the home environment variable is always there. Like for humans, it's not a problem. But it gets problematic if like, for example, for demons that are running, like if there's no home environment variable, then the shared configuration file will not be fetched by the SDK. So in this case, you could either set the home environment variable or you set the um, AWS CSM enabled environment variable directly. So the big question is how to debug, debug this. And 
there are basically two ways that I usually um, go. One is you can get the um, UDP stream onto your machine using TCP dump. And the command is in the blog post, so I'm not going to spell it out here. So there are a couple of options. But basically, it's a way to listen to the UDP port on in your in your shell. And the other command that I really like, or the other um, debug tool that I like, is you can actually get access to all the environment variables of all the processes if you're a root user um, by looking into um, slash proc, slash then the, the process identifier, slash the file is called environ. And there you can see all the environment variables that are defined. The problem with this file is that um, instead of like listing environment variables with a uh, slash n like carriage return um, character, they separate um, environment variables with a um, zero byte, which is not really shown nicely if you open it with cut, for example. So that's why I have some magic command in the blog post as well that that displays you this strangely formatted file um, in a, a nice manner so that you see the environment variables underneath each other instead of in one long line. But you can also use cut to, to do the same thing. Um, it's just a little bit harder to read. Okay, Michael, so let me let me ask a question if I understand that correctly. So so basically what I need to do to get the client-side monitoring feature of the SDK or the CLI up and running is I either configure it in the AWS config file or if that is not possible, I can also use an environment variable. And basically what you talked through now is how I can check if a running process, so the process of the application, uh, is using... Um, uh, an AWS config file or an environment variable. So I can check and debug that basically with, the, with what you have described here. Yeah, and there's this one like detail, like if you, for example, configure for the root user, there's a, a .aws directory and within that it's a config file and you might now think, okay, everything is fine. The problem is if you start a process as root mm -hmm. and this process has not defined the home environment variable, it will not fetch the configuration file because this only works if the home environment variable is defined. So that's how the SDKs are programmed to figure out where to look at uh, for the file. Yeah. So those are the like the details. Um, there's one another hint that I want to give uh, here, like because lots of those daemons are started with systemd in Amazon Linux 2 at least. Um, it's very easy to inject environment variables with systemd. So each um, um, like what you have like a init file, like it's kind of the unit file in systemd. And there you can just add a single line where you say environment equals and then environment variable equals a value. And then you can um, populate an environment variable to the process. So this is also um, in the blog post, like the details. And this is very handy for things like the SSM agent, CloudWatch logs agent, like there are a couple of agents running by default on Amazon Linux too, like EC2 instance connect. I mean, there's really a lot of stuff running out of the box um, without maybe everyone noticing it. Um, so for all those um, like demons that run in the background, it makes sense to to configure that, and then you get all the data. Okay, Michael. So so and then that's another thing I want to repeat if I understood it correctly. So if I enable the client side monitoring for my process uh, for my CLI whatever, uh, I then have basically to listen on port um, three one zero 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 to get the information from client-side monitoring. So all of the tools, the SDKs, the CLIs, all send it to the same UDP port. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And they send it to the loopback interface. So it's local. It's not published to the outside world. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's correct. 
If you really like, you can also change the port. So there's also an environment variable for that. And uh, you can also do it in the config file. But I just go with the defaults here to keep things simple. But yeah, that's correct. They will all send their data to the same um, to the same port. So the next important question is now that we have all this data coming in on, on the port, on the UDP port, um, we need to capture it and we need to send it um, somewhere for our, uh, to make our lives easier to analyze the data. And what I um, in, or what I think it's the it, like the easiest way here and the, the the way that has with least effort is we use FluentD, and FluentD can listen on UDP port. It can do some transformation and it can upload to S3. And that's kind of all we need. Um, so that's why I go with FluentD, and it's also pretty easy to install on Amazon Linux too. Okay, maybe one question: the data that is coming from the client uh, side, so uh, client um, side monitoring. Uh, is it already in a in a machine readable format? Is it JSON or something? Or exactly, it's it's JSON, oh. and and FluentD can also pass that JSON for us. So it's yeah, FluentD really is a good fit here. I think and there are a couple of other ways of doing it, um, and I mean you can do whatever you like. I think that's an easy one. So um, it works and it's proven, and it's a lot of documentation out there and a lot a big community. So FluentD is a mm -hmm. I think a more a, a popular open source project. Yes, absolutely. Um, so. That's kind of um, uh, how we are going to solve it. So what we need to implement this. First, we need to install it. Okay, that's um, not a big deal. Um, um, luckily, they even have an Amazon Linux 2 optimized um, like package for uh, FluentD to install. So that's really uh, going to work very, very nicely on Amazon Linux 2. It also works for uh, lots, of, lots of other distributions. So it's very likely that you will find a good, a good package here. Um, Then we need some IAM policies. Um, so because we want to upload to an S3 bucket, we have to allow uh, FluentD to upload to the bucket. And I like the luck, like interesting what I found is that when I was writing this policy, I actually had the need to figure out what API calls FluentD uh, makes because at the beginning, I only allowed put object, which kind of makes sense, but it was not working. And the error message was not very helpful. It just said access denied, not what operation was executed. And It turns out that FluentD makes, or the plugin for uploading to S3 or FluentD makes a get object request before they upload data. <laughs> for some reasons, they make a head object and call, which requires the get object permission. So I figured that out by looking at the UDP stream um, by with using the TCP dump command. So that was very handy. I kind of used my same, like the same approach to actually f set up this, this thing um, because it was already a problem. And then I also added the list bucket permission And so this is not visible in um, in the in the API calls, but there's this problem. Um, I don't know. It's a kind of a pitfall in S3. So if you make a get object call and the file does not exist, you get back a forbidden 403, I think. Mm -hmm. And if you allow the S3 list bucket operation, you get back a 404. So FluentD expects to get back 404. So that's why I have to allow this bucket as well. But that's kind of a. I mean, that's that's a tricky one. But if you use S3, then you know that. <laughs> Um, and I think yeah, lots of people run into this uh, kind of, I don't know, I would call it a, it's a pitfall there. Um, so last but not least, we have to configure FluentD. Um, so in a nutshell, what we do is we listen on port 31,000. Um, we parse the input as JSON. And then I do a transformation. And what I add is the host name. And I know this is a little bit, I mean, this could be improved. The host name is not... I mean, it contains all kinds of information, but not in a really nicely formatted way. I mean, it would be nice to get the instance ID, to get 
maybe the, the private IP and things like this. So all the metadata of the instance. Um, and the good news is there is a plugin for that, a Fluentd plugin for that. So if you want to have all the metadata from the metadata service, um, you could inject that here as well. But I want to keep the example simple. That's why I go with like um, without like the native way of doing it without installing an additional plugin. And um, so I use the host name. Um, so I enrich each entry with the host name. So this helps me later to differentiate um, like calls coming from different machines. And after this enrichment, I um, upload the data to S3. And Fluentd does some like smart things. It buffers the data, so it does not send every API call to S3. It it waits for, in the way I configured it, for 10 minutes or for 256 megabytes. And if this chunk is kind of um, collected, then it will send it up and, and it will also cheese a bit and then it uploads it um, to S3. And then it's available uh, for us for, um, anal like for analysis. So that's the next step that we have to take. And here it is really important that you wait a couple of, like I would say a couple of days, because we need some data. I mean, if you like immediately start with the with the next step, it will not going to work. Mm. Um, it so probably depends a little bit on how yeah on how the application is used, whether it's under high load, and also yeah. if you are going through all the different scenarios that are in the application. That's maybe so. Maybe you have I don't know. It could be you have something running at the end of the month or something that is I don't know uploading some data to S three only at the end of the month. So it could uh, it could be that you're then missing that. So yeah. The time spent that you're recording is definitely important here. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a really good point, Andreas. Because like one in one of the projects I was working on, we figured out that like during deployments, lots of API calls are made. For example, that are not made like um, if there are no deployments running. And during the time frame where I captured the data first, there was for some reason no one working on the application, so there was no deployment. So and when I was looking through all the data, I was wondering, okay, why is this policy in the, uh, in the policy, but we never called this API. And then I, I just, I mean, with less some care, I figured out, okay, that looks really much like something that happens during a deployment because it was uh, involved with code deploy and things like this. So I just triggered a manual deployment and run the pipeline manually. And then, oh, all of a sudden, um, I saw lots of different API calls that was never, never recorded before. So that's a very good point. You really have to make sure to invoke everything that runs on this machine, all the code paths, because we only record what we can observe. So we, we don't look into the source code. We only observe the application. And if it does not make the API calls, we don't know that the API calls are actually possible. So, okay, um, Andreas. So we now have the data in S3. Michael, I have one question. So um, does it record um, only um, successful API calls or also the failed ones? Um, that's that's also a good point. Um, it, it records both. Okay, that's so cool. So you can also use this for debugging and and this is also i used it for that as well and it's a different like use case that we have now with um, making iron policies uh, secure but you can also use it for this scenario it also reports latencies and all kinds of interesting data okay so in theory i could I, let's say i use it to record everything i then modify my iron policy um, remove some uh, statements and actions and and so on uh, but then I can use the same thing to basically monitor if that is really working or if something uh, breaks in production or something. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, that, that's exactly the case. And you can, I mean, you probably don't want to use the S3 approach in this case because you have the 10-minute delay here. Mm. I mean, if that's fine for you, that's okay. But what I did in another project where we had exactly this use case is 
I instead of connecting it to an S3 bucket, I connected it to CloudWatch logs. And we had like a very low latency um, between API call was made and we, 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 we saw it in CloudWatch logs. Then I had a CloudWatch logs filter on top of it and we basically did exactly what you said. So we, we alerted on XSD nights. So that's a, a very good way. And it's it's much faster than what you can achieve with CloudTrail, which has this 15-minute latency. And it's, I mean, it's 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 kind of... Yeah, it's clumsy. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's re- relatively useless. So <laughs> at least for that. I mean, if you, really, if you really look at something and you want to figure out what's wrong, then if you always have to wait 15 minutes to see the result in CloudTrail, it's, um, it's slowing you down. Um, so that that's definitely much faster here using client-side monitoring. So the cycle, the feedback cycle is immediate, basically. Yeah. So, so what is um, so the good thing about CloudTrail compared to what we're talking here is that CloudTrail is really an audit log that no one can modify. So in that case, if I have access to the machine, I could, for example, filter out some of the requests I'm doing. So I cannot really use it as an audit log. I can use it for the scenarios that you have described. I think the use cases are a little bit different. Um, the, the intent of CloudTrail is really to have an, an, an uncompromisable audit log of, uh, of most things, I would say. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, so I'm not saying that CloudTrail is not useful here at all. That's not what I'm going to say. The, the only thing that I'm going to say is that if you want to optimize an IAM policy of an EC2 instance, then client-side monitoring is um, like a, the better tool. And CloudTrail captures lots of interesting things. And as you said, you cannot turn it off. So that's the good thing. I mean, client-side monitoring, you have to turn it on and you can turn it off. And, and so that's the big problem here. But um, and, and CloudTrail captures, like all the administrative activity is captured in CloudTrail. Like if you start a machine, if you change the network, so that's all captured in CloudTrail. But the, the thing that I'm looking at here is things like getting messages from SQS, putting something in DynamoDB, like the... The calls that a machine actually makes, the application makes, and they are usually not visible in CloudTrail, and that's why things are so hard. Um, okay, so Andreas, we now have the data in S3. So what do you think, how we are going to analyze it? Um, so it's JSON, so I think we could use uh, Athena here. Yeah, and I think that's one of your favorite services, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so um, the way it works is... Um, before we can use Athena, we have to create the schema. And when I was first looking into this service, it's called AWS Clue. Um, it was not working that well, but this time I was surprised because it was just out of the box doing exactly what I wanted. So what we do first is we create a so-called Clue crawler and we point the Clue crawler to the S3 bucket where the data is in. And then the Clue crawler just magically discovers the schema. And this works out of the box without any problems. So what we get out of that, as soon as the crawler is um, like done with its job, we create it creates the table, and it also creates all the partitions in Athena. So this is a really efficient way then later for making queries where you only want to look at specific time or date ranges, basically. And that's all done by the Clue crawler. So it creates the necessary uh, uh, schema for Athena. And then once we have the schema, we can run queries on our data. And I have a couple of examples in um, in the blog post. But basically, what you will end up doing is a call that groups by the service and by the API call. And then you just count how many API calls were made by which uh, for which API call. And that's kind of the result that we can then use to optimize the policies. Now it gets interesting. I compared exactly the same time or date range with what I see in CloudTrail. So in CloudTrail... You could use different ways, again, of analyzing the data. 
And to make things a little bit more interesting, I go with a different route. I, I, you could use Athena as well and look at the data in S3, but I was looking into my CloudWatch log stream. So I use CloudWatch Insights and I run more or less the same query. So I group by um, the service and uh, API call that was made and I count them and then I sort them and um, in this candling order. And it turns out that actually CloudTrail misses like in like in quantitative terms, it misses like over 99% of the API calls uh, in the example that I used. So things like CloudWatch logs put log events, not visible in CloudTrail, visible in client-side monitoring. SQS receive messages, not visible in CloudTrail at all. CloudWatch put metric data, not visible in CloudTrail at all. So there were like at least 10 or 20 API calls that I saw uh, in client-side monitoring that were not at all present in CloudTrail. And this is where things get very handy. If you now use the two data sources and combine them, you get uh, like a better understanding of what actually goes on. If you see something in CloudTrail that you don't see in client-side monitoring, then you have forgot to turn CSM on for one of your processes. So you have to ensure that uh, you go back and make sure that you really capture all the data. So I use it to kind of make sure that my data makes sense. So the numbers have to match and I will be likely see more in client-side monitoring than I see in CloudTrail. Very cool stuff, Michael. So that's that's really impressive. And I think especially for the data events, I think that those are in, in many applications that are running on EC2 or somewhere, those are the, the interesting um the interesting API calls because that's what usually an, an application is using. Uh, very cool stuff. Okay, so now um we talked about the cool stuff, so let's talk about the stuff that's not so cool. Um so the the method that I described is super handy to make sure that only actions for like to make sure that the actions actually match with what you have in the policy. But the problem is the resource level constraints. Because in client-side monitoring, you don't get any information about the body of the request. So that's not visible. So you cannot tighten or optimize the resource level constraints. That is possible with CloudTrail. So in CloudTrail, you see the request body. Um, but only for the requests that are captured by CloudTrail. So that's why I usually use this data that I have then, and then a conversation has to begin with either the developers of this software, and uh, the vendor of the software, or if they all not exist, we could agree on resource as a star, like no resource level constraints at all, if you don't know, or we have to really figure it out by trial and error. But this is then going to be very, very hard. Um, and I would like to see client-side monitoring an option to... I mean, I'm not sure why they don't publish it by default. Maybe I think UDP has some like body length constraints. Like the data, like the, the, the package cannot get uh, like increasingly big. I'm not sure if that's the reason or if it's like of privacy or security reasons. But if you could turn this on additionally, I definitely think it could help. I mean, even better if the SDKs would just publish the yarn on which they work on, but I'm not think that this is going to happen soon um but yeah that's the that's the big problem of this um of this approach it only works for the actions it's not going to work for resource level constraints um but still this is the best thing that we have so far so i have not seen any other method that goes uh, like at this level of detail and captures so much data that we can use um Another thing to say here is that um you can turn on some data events in cloudtrail so for example I think it's available for DynamoDB and it's also uh, available for S3. Um, 
So that's um, that's an option as well. But you have to pay for that. Um, it's, it's not cheap. Uh, so if you really have high volume, then it might not be a good idea to turn it on. But that's um, also something to keep in mind. So I think that's that's it, Andreas. Um, I, I really like the approach. I used it now uh, over three times in projects, and I was really happy with it. Cool, Michael. Yeah, thank you very much. So once again, I want to mention that there is a blog post going over that as well. So if you want to check the details, you will find the link for that in the show notes. So then, yeah, thanks for listening. Um, we will um, talk to each other in two weeks again. And um, yeah, to all the listeners, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, feel free to send us your feedback. You will find links to Twitter, LinkedIn, email, Uh, in the show notes and please also recommend the podcast to a friend yeah Andreas one thing to mention before we end here um, so this is actually a shout out to Scott from Summit Route so he wrote a blog post in May and kind of introduced client-side monitoring to me and uh, so that was really like eye-opening and I didn't know about the feature uh, so it's kind of a hidden feature I would say of the SDKs so that was really nice uh, a nice way to discover this feature and then from there i started using working it basically and with fluentd and different options tried it out and it's really nice and a good way of of optimizing policies yeah so thank you very much andreas and see you in two weeks perfect bye yeah bye <laughs>